stood and stared at it, marveled at its beauty, its genius. Billions of people just living out their lives, oblivious. Did you know that the first Matrix was designed to be a perfect human world where none suffered, where everyone would be happy? It was a disaster. No one would accept the program. Entire crops were lost. Some believed that we lacked the programming language to describe your perfect world, but I believe that as a species, human beings define their reality through misery and suffering. So the perfect world was a dream that your primitive cerebrum kept trying to wake up from. Hey guys, welcome back to Podside. Uh, this is Pete, as you can probably tell from the melodious sound of my voice. Uh, Chewy is licking my foot and it's driving me mad. Uh, I have Carlo here. Hello. And returning guest, uh, is he the champion right now? He's getting up there to the most returning guest of all time. Uh, Michelle is back. How's it going, man? I'm doing great. What an honor, really. What a oh. huge honor to have that. You're fun to talk to, so it's uh, it's definitely in our interest to keep suckering you into coming back. So, um, I when I describe the short story we're going to be talking about today to people, I often say things like, "This is an important anarchist text," and. Because I want to be cautious and because there are people listening who have actually coherent opinions of what an anarchist text actually is, I'm not going to say that today. What I am going to say is that of the stories I have read that have um, shoved me left and opened my eyes to some things that nobody wants to see – this is probably the most important story for me. And it's called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. And it's by Ursula Le Guin. And if you haven't read it yet, what the fuck? It's going to take you like 20 minutes. Pause e- the episode. Not even that, honestly. It's like four pages long. Yeah. Yes. But so, so like, like, you know, take. T- Use the time that you would traditionally use on, I don't know, peeing or a smoke break or whatever it is you do. Go read it and come back because it's I mean, it's probably one of the more important things that I can recommend to people in terms of stories. I mean, it's that important to me. Um, I have built this up so much that I don't know where to go, guys. Where should I go? <laughs> maybe Away we from should all, all well, maybe we should all, yeah, we should all visit the, uh, the summer festival. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to go there. I, I mean, <laughs> look, I think it's really funny because, um, when you pitch this story to me, and I looked it up on online. And if you look it up online, they spoil the twist. It's not even a twist. It's like, that's what the story is about. It's about mm-hmm. an utopian society. And eventually the narrator reveals to you that this utopian society is only utopian because of a single child that's made to suffer. And if the child ever stops suffering, then the utopia is going to fall apart. I looked that mm-hmm. up and I was like, all right, yeah, I think I've kind of seen this before, you know, let's in the sense of like every single utopia out there has this twist. It's like you, you, you pretty much expect it out of any young adult novel with a special person fighting against an evil government or whatever. But reading it, I was actually surprised about the way that the narrator, and I hope I'm not saying this, I'm saying this right, Ursula Le Guin? You yeah. are saying it right. Yeah. I'm surprised about the way that Le Guin actually reveals it. Because the way she reveals it is she at first describes Omelas Omelas in this very 
picturesque way that is a both specific and vague. And it reminds me a lot of like a person talking to you and like, look, words literally, at one point she says, words cannot describe this. And if you want to imagine that there is like phones or whatever, sure, there's phones, but like you have to, you know, this and that and this and that. And then at around two pages in comes the punch where she doesn't say, aha, you thought this was good? Well, actually, it's bad. Instead, she says, do you accept this place? Do you accept the beauty of Omelas? No. Okay, then let me tell you about something else that might make you accept it. And it's like, and then she tells you about the little kid. And that really made me, you know, that one was just not only a gut punch. I made this joke to Carlo, but I took a picture of it and I was like, top 10 pictures taken before disaster. Because it is a gun punch. You're like, you're really not prepared for it. Um, but it's very interesting how the Gwen is sort of playing on the fact that we've been conditioned by stories to expect a catch out of everything. And I'm not just saying out of stories, out of everything, you know, we ask what's the catch to everything, to a commercial. We ask what's the catch to a friend making an offer. We ask what's the catch to everything. We've just been conditioned to expect what the catch is. And I think Le Guin, the point she's trying to make is that we've been all, we've also been conditioned to just to sort of accept that there's always going to be a catch and you know, that's life. And the way she does it is by making the catch something so inherently disgusting that you immediately go, how can anyone live here? And then she goes, well, here's how they do that. And you start to realize, wait a second, that's kind of the same arguments a lot of people make for behind the exploitation that keeps the world running nowadays. It's like, you kind of see the same thought process that somebody who's rich and then realizes where their money comes from goes through at some point or never goes through if they're lucky enough to remain ignorant for the rest of their lives. And I, it was, it's just a very, it's just a very, it, it, that, I don't know if gut punch is the right word, but it just hits you in a spot that you really were not expecting to hit. And well, that's why I think it's a great piece of work. <laughs> piece of I mean, it's, yeah. the thing here is that I've, I've read this, I don't even know how many times, like dozens of times. Um, I, I came late to it. I didn't like read it when I was young and, you know, sort of like, ah, uh, so it didn't really hold a, like it, it, let me put it to you this way. It didn't have a nostalgic, uh, uh, place in my memory. So when I first read it, read it was maybe, uh, maybe f 10, seven years ago. And sure. I've read it several times since. And every time it's always, there's always something that I find that's surprising to me. And this time I found right on page one, she sets it up. She establishes it. She says, um, as she's describing, you know, the clamor of bells that set the swallows soaring, blah, 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 so on and so forth. Like in the second main paragraph, uh, she says, yet I repeat that these were not simple folk. Not dulcet shepherds, noble savages, bland utopians. They were not less complex than us. The trouble is that we have a bad habit, encouraged by pedants and sophisticates, of considering happiness as something rather stupid. Only pain is intellectual, only evil interesting. And so here, right here is where she sets it up for you. And when she's asking you, she sets it up, she describes it, she gives you all the lush details of how the horses champ and how the horses ha are the, the only animal that has adopted human, you know, uh, human customs as their own and so on and so forth. All these beautiful turns of phrases. And that's exactly what we're the, right at the third page, right before she lays it all out, she says, do you believe? Do you accept the festival, the city, the joy? No. Then let me describe one more thing. And right there, you could stop. You could stop reading and accept the utopia, but you do not. You could walk away from walk away from Ovalos. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's right there, man. It is so good. Yeah. So I have been thinking about this story a lot in terms of of politics and the personal because i think like a lot of the things like um uh, there's a lot of people out there that regard 
uh, Trump as the worst possible evil, for example. And the solution was to bring us all together and to suck it up and to um, just try and form a coalition that would make things a little better and we would do incremental changes over time. And as as somebody who I don't well, let's just say I'm on the left. I mean, this isn't about my politics, but it, it's more and more I'm realizing that it is not my my objections to that are not practical. They are moral. Mm-hmm. Like fundamentally, I do not accept a world where we just have to keep people in cages for three more days to get the votes counted. And I do not accept a world where the economy is more important than feeding kids. And it is the world I am in, and I do not know what to do. And this book offers like a like a a, a placemat map from a Shoney's diner direction you can go and that direction terrifies me i don't think i have the stones for it frankly uh i don't mean to throw this i'm pretty sure this is good i'm not sure if you guys were planning to put this in the patreon but and i it kind of sucks but for the sake of my continued stay in the united states this might have to stay in the patreon because i'm not (laughs) supposed to make hourly political statements as an immigrant but anyway uh I don't want to throw my two other hosts for Full Metal Analyst under the bus, but we had an interesting discussion a while back. In the show, there is this concept called the Philosopher's Stone. And the Philosopher's yes. Stone is supposed to be this magical two, which allows you to bypass the rules of the system and allows you to get whatever you wanted. And it's this magical thing that the characters of the show are looking for from the beginning until they find out that the Philosopher's Stone is made out of people. Soil and green is made out of people, whatever. <laughs> it, it did cross my mind. You got me. Yeah. <laughs> so they they find out the Philosopher's Stone is literally made out of human souls. And that most Philosopher's Stones that you that they see out there in the world were made out of prisoners, condemned people. You know, they, the villains literally round up people and turn them into these magical stones that allow them to bypass the rules of the magic system. And the characters make a point right there and there, the main protagonist, of saying, we are not going to use the system. We are not going to use the Philosopher's Stone to get what we want because we find it inherently repugnant. And me and my other two hosts, we had a discussion because, you know, suddenly the topic became, would you use a Philosopher's Stone? And I was like, I would not. And then... What happens, and that what that's what always happens in these situations, is that the butts and the hypotheticals started coming in. Like, what if yes. you just found it on the street? What if, you know, what if somebody did it, but then they disappear, so now they're going to do any more evil? Would you just not use it? And it's like, there. and I told them, I, you can listen to this. This episode probably came out. It's the Secret Star of Miles episode where we talk about the f- movie. But I told them, like, if you have to come up with these hypotheticals to justify you using the stone, then you're just trying to lie to yourself and find reasons as to why you would do this thing, which you know is evil. And the thing is, we do that every day. You know, we do that every day for every single thing. Two hours ago, I ate a Burger King. Um, (laughs) I ate a Burger King meal. Why? Because I really needed to eat something and I didn't have time to cook. Am I highly aware that Burger King, like many other companies, is inherently evil? Yes. Am I highly aware that the the guy who took my food here is being underpaid and deserves much more money and attention than I'm probably giving him? Yes. And, you know, I feel bad that I didn't do all these things, that I ordered Burger King, that I didn't pay him a $20 tip. And But at some point in my life, I think I've dulled myself to that pain and just kind of accepted that this is what I have to do to live in this society. And this thing here, this piece of fiction, which I, I, the story, reminds you of that because the topic of the people who walk away from Amelas, the topic of the people who actually go, no is literally the last paragraph. That is the last paragraph. I think Le Guin knows that 
you know, she needs four pages to convince you that there's this utopian society, that it is literally perfect, that it relies on the suffering of a young child, that there are people who know this and still live on this perfect society. Here's what they use to justify themselves. But all she needs is one paragraph of being like, there are people who just walk away. And we don't know where they go, but they seem to know where they're going, the ones who walk away from Momilos. And it's interesting because at the core, she knows, maybe this is just projecting, she knows that we know that the people who walk away are right. She doesn't need four pages to explain why they do it or to even talk about them. We know that those people are right. And at some point we had an opportunity to become those people and we just kind of like, we, we kind of said, no, we can't. And we gave our own reasons, but the thing is we chose not to walk away and we are partaking in the exploitation of the child. Yes. Which is sad. But Michelle, <laughs> but Michelle, those people are actually, it's very problematic. They should have stayed behind to fight. Within for, the system. Within the system. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> yeah. God, again, it's that's literally something you also talk about in Metal Analyst. Like, there's a character who is part of the military, and I hate him because he is a genocidal maniac. But because he's inside the system, quote unquote, and he's fighting against inside the system, quote unquote, he's also one of the protagonists and one of the heroes. And I'm like, he still killed a bunch of people in the war. Like, they show him killing kids in the war, and it's like, I don't care that he's fighting against the system put him to jail right now it's like i don't know it's complicated yeah well i mean um uh fun facts about me when i'm not here um i teach and i love teaching more than anything um it's it's one of the great joys of my life but what i teach is finance in a call center so I am enabling people to enable other people to remain rich. And I'm like eyes wide open. I am throwing my weight behind a system that I think is fundamentally unjust. Uh, excuse me, Pete, you are collateralizing the uh, debt of the child into many s different tranches so that yes. it can be evenly distributed. <laughs> Exactly. Well, what what if we could monetize the child? <laughs> well, oh, I mean, God. no, no. First, you'd have to abstract <laughs> the child and make it into some other, like a child credit or something. You know, oh, no, you, you, you make a gig economy out of the child. You know? <laughs> oh God! <laughs> could you imagine having fivers for you two can be the child for five minutes? You know, it's <sighs> Jesus Christ. Means um, testing I mean, child. I mean, abuse. that that would be the. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure Le Guin died recently, right? Yes. Uh, I mean, wouldn't yes. that be the sequel to this? That suddenly they were like, wait, we just realized that it doesn't have to be just the child. Other people can suffer. So let's, you know, make a system where everyone suffers for five minutes, but we all get... It's like, that's the yeah. sequel to Omelas. It's, it's just finding ways to spread around the exploitation. Who, who was it that said that it's easier to imagine a world that doesn't exist than a world without capitalism? Um, I know it's attributed to Mark Fisher, but I forget who it actually is. Um, Jameson, and I don't remember the first name. So, for all I know, it's the guy who made the the whiskey. Yeah, a Fisher attributes attributes it to both Frederick Jameson and Shafov Jizek, which is my off. That's my awful imitation of him. I'm sorry. The child is is living in a dumpster. The child is pure ideology. <laughs> and that, in the name of that dumpster is ideology. Oh my god! Um, so anyway, yeah. So and and I do want to point out that when Le Guin describes the child, um, it is in no, it is not a noble, it is not nobly suffering. It is ugly. It has almost no humanity left in it. Um. And I say it because she uses it as well. Uh, I could use them. It's fine, whatever. But the point is that it doesn't, it can't even vocalize anymore. It's starving. Its legs are covered in sores. You know, it's, it's just, it's really horrific. I can only imagine how horrific it must be to look upon the child. Um, and which is what every Omolossian, Omolan, 
omelette? I don't know. I kept um, thinking omelation, but that sounded vaguely racist, so I didn't know where to go. <laughs> yeah, that sounds problematic. Those <laughs> who stay in omelettes, that, that's what we call them. It's long, um, but it fits. Fair. Yeah. I mean, the, the they are told, or they're shown the child uh, around age 10, I believe. Uh, and uh, that's where a lot of the people who walk away, you know, struggle with that visit. Uh, and, and, uh, actually they, they can come back and visit it later if they want, but it's the first time. And a lot of children are just disgusted and just, but after a while it's, it's like you said, Michelle, you start, uh, sort of rationalizing and it's evil, but with extra steps, you know, you, you sort of distance yourself a little bit from it because, well, you know, it's for the good of everyone. It's very, uh, it, it sort of pits this moral argument against the idea of utilitarianism, but it's not simply that either because Again, it, it becomes more complex after the people know about the secret. It's that idea of, you know, <clears throat> It's that idea that she re she reserves only the last paragraph to talk about the title of the story. And it's like, she knows. We have been conditioned, not just by stories, but by the world as a whole, to be incapable of imagining the people who suffer at the hands of our privileges, privileges and our uh, priorities. We have been conditioned to be incapable of imagining those people as people, you know? Even something as an article talking about the kids in cages, the way they talk about it, you don't see kids in cages. You see like, you see like animals in cages. It's almost like subconsciously someone is going, we have to humanize them, but not enough that people ask how did they get there in the first place or ask what led to the situation being allowed to happen. You know, it's, it's, it's sad, you know, to, and and it's something that happens with technology too. It's so easy for us to, you know, to be talking to someone on the internet and to forget that that person is a person with a story and a life and all that. Or to even imagine our own delivery people as people with uh, feelings and desires and all that. And it's, it's, uh, it's an entire system that's designed to separate us and to dehumanize us from each other because that allows it, the system to continue. And the way it clouds itself is by doing what Le Guin does in the book. It's by going, well, you know, the kid, even if you free the kid, the kid wouldn't even know what freedom means. Like, the kid, it's worth, it's worthless. Why do it? I mean, look at how many good things we have. Why? Like, that kid's only gonna have to suffer. You really want everyone to, to live in shit because of one kid? Like, really? Like, yikes, dude. That's a bad take, you know? <laughs> That's basically what she's doing. <laughs> Freeing the child? This ain't it, chief. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. Free the child. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, what you need is more children guards. Yeah. Um, I, I'm joking about this mainly because this, every time the story, every time I read this story, it hits, it, it really hits me hard because it's absolutely correct. And, um, you know, I don't have, I don't think Le Guin was trying to answer any questions. She was just leaving a question hanging yeah. because She's like, I don't know how to fix this shit. This is on you. You figure it out. I don't know. <laughs> well, and I mean, she's, <laughs> she's describing it and she's obviously she has a moral stance. Uh, she's not neutral. Like the narrator in this story is not being neutral in any way, shape or form, but is also saying it's not my problem to solve, buddy. You figure it out. Yeah. Well, and it'd be the the problem we're really talking about in a sense is not Omalos, but your decision to stick fucking around, which is mm -hmm. nothing the narrator can fix. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I I think I've I've had a couple of moments in my life where I've had to go back to the story. Not not because it grounded me or healed me, but more like sort of like wearing a hair shirt, like like this is the specific thing that's hurting me. So I need to take a closer look at it and stab myself like um, one of the things I used to do for work was go to different countries and help set up call centers for a large company. And um, 
I spent a really long time in the Philippines for part of that. And at one point, because, um, you know, when you're in somebody else's country, after a while, you you sort of feel alien. Like you, you accept the fact that you're not going to get a cheeseburger just how you want. You accept the fact that it's not your place. But like after week number three, you just you just want to go someplace where you can you can drop your shields for a minute. And so I went to an expat bar out of curiosity and just to see if people were like me. And I hope to Christ I am not like those people. <laughs> and just pure pure reactionaries that hated the hated the people around them. Oh yeah. Well, and somebody gave me the fucking Omelas argument. Oh, oh Jesus God. Christ. He was there with a girl on his arm and he was talking to me about how being there spending money was good for people. He was helping. This woman's life was better because he was there. And I just fucking left. Well, I mean, and that he is, walked that away from Omelas Bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I walked away from expat. Like, oh God, but I solved nothing. But I mean, the thing here is that, I mean, that is in fact the pure liber- neoliberal argument, isn't it? That because money flows everywhere and sometimes it flows it gathers in certain places no one knows why it's just you know just calling balls and shots here folks it's the money just flows where <laughs> it wants to go man um so right there you're giving up the game because it, it, it they want to ex- abstract capital as if it's this living thing and it's not a, a series of choices complex ones that are much more complex now but still choices made by people and that money is completely made up by people so it's not like if you just said you know what let the chips fall where they may and it you know, and you do actually distribute it evenly across the globe, you know, that would be one thing. But that argument is just simply a way for you to sort of duck your your responsibility in the whole system and say, well, no, no, no. See, I'm helping. I'm I'm actually helping people. You know, like free trade helps other countries. And you're like, no, no, it doesn't. No. You know, it's it's really interesting that Le Guin chose a child to be at the center of Omelas because I'm pretty sure there's going to be people who read this and they're going to be like, oh, this is ridiculous. It's not like this, actually. You know, if you think about it, it's actually she's exaggerating. But she chose a child. I'd like to believe she chose. My interpretation is that the child is there because child children, even those we hate, and I, I'm not a fan of kids, <laughs> they are blameless. You know, children are blameless. They are, in a sense, innocent. There are some kids who... <laughs> I ask you for it, but <laughs> those kids in general are blameless. And when I mean well, asking for it, I don't mean like putting them in a cage and suffering. I mean, in the sense of like, some children need to stop yelling. Uh, I mean, in that sense, well, I'm I, digging myself a hole. No, no, you're absolutely right. If it were an adult in that basement, everybody would be like, well, who is that adult? Can we turn this into a moral story? Why? Uh, who? How did he get there? You know, maybe yeah. he was well, asking for it. He should have worn well, those I clothes. Mean, maybe well, he yeah, volunteered. Exactly. Well, I mean, that's that's exactly why she chose a child because you know, sort of like the stereotypical child is, as Michelle says, an innocent. They are not in control of anything. If it were an adult in there, you know, like you know, Home Alone twenty three, you know, and Kevin, we left Kevin alone again. He's twenty five. You know, that's not as compelling uh, a story, right? Because at that point, you're like, well, what choices did that adult make to end right. up there? And granted, there is obviously a, an argument to be made that sometimes you can be an adult. <laughs> I mean, look at all the prisons that ha- that are filled with people just awaiting trial. You can be an adult and have no control over why you are locked up. Um, but the the simplicity of the story and and like the 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 constraints of narrative are such that you need to really be efficient. So you need to have a child. It needs to be an innocent. And um, I mean, you know, Pete, you mentioned the Philippines. I mean, Puerto Rico. Uh, was invaded uh, by the U.S. because they needed to bring freedom to Puerto Rico. Uh, You're welcome. By, yes, by, I mean, uh, obviously, and uh, they needed to be freed by an empire, 
with an empire invading them. And we, we still haven't been able to get self-determination because, you know, well, even those in, in Puerto Rico, certain people within Puerto Rico, within the infighting and the political parties will say, well, well, we're not ready for that. So then you get part of it is a self-infantilization uh, as well as, you know, obviously there's some people that are just cynically saying, well, no, 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 don't, don't, don't shut down the money train. Come on. Sure. Yeah, everyone's getting money. Yeah, I actually used to dream of <clears throat> retiring to Puerto Rico, but it's as far off my list as imaginable now, just knowing that that's actually, I mean, and I'm I apologize that I was too stupid to realize this, Carlo, but it's, it's an instrument of that colonialism. Like it's a big oh, piece of the yeah. point is to drive everybody out of Puerto Rico and bring everybody else there to build their fucking McMansions. Dude, that is something that is happening right now. Like, honestly. And like, like I, I joked about it, but I'm like saying like, dude, the, the COVID didn't get to the island by itself. You know, <laughs> it's <Right>. an island, <laughs> you know, unless somebody swam there <laughs> or was like a castaway washed ashore on a piece of driftwood, COVID wasn't getting there. You know, it was, per, it was entirely U.S. people that came there and gave people COVID, not just U.S., but mostly U.S., Mm -hmm. uh, well, to even, be fair, it was the only, just about the only other place we could fuck up. We're limited. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's the thing. I mean, the 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 states, even when some of the states were closed down uh, for travel, uh, Puerto Rico did not and could not uh, really close down. I, I, I guess they could have tried, but then there's the sticky wicket of a financial board uh, that is not elected that may have something to say about uh, incomes income streams uh, regarding tourism. So I don't know. I, I, the fact of the matter is that uh, Puerto Rico is well and colonized. They never, I don't think they ever fought for the uh, chance to close down their borders. Uh, anyway, uh, that's a, a, a small digression. Carlo, immigrants, <laughs> we get the job done. Uh, fuck you, Lin-Manuel <laughs> Miranda. <laughs> Fucker. <laughs> You know, actually, if there was a sequel to Omelas, it would be how about the people of Omelas wrote a musical about how the child actually wants to be in the. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. What is everyone, am I saying something controversial? Everybody, it's like every. I God, God, I'm so. Once I had this argument with a friend, and I was like, if Mike Pence feels comfortable enough to see Hamilton, then maybe Hamilton is not a good musical. It's not like well, it, a revolutionary text. Yeah, it's it not a radical, not radical text. And she was like, that's not their fault. It's like Michael Pence would not see Rent, and Rent is a shitty fucking awful musical <laughs> but he would not see it because it's about gay people being happy or whatever like i have we should, i'm not gonna go into hamilton i just yeah <laughs> well, then, <laughs> what's what's your name son this is child of all my lessons <laughs> fuck me <laughs> well i mean there's 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 two there's two places we could go with hamilton and i don't want to go to either of them one is <laughs> the quality of the musical and the other is the politics. And I would say of the two, I have a much bigger problem with the politics. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everyone who has an argument against Hamilton is like, by the way, okay, here's the thing. Everyone has an argument. that's like Hamilton really well written, but bad politics. I'm going to go on a limb and say, not that well written. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, there are some good songs in it, but as a musical, it's very much, bad I don't, I, I don't know how to make this I, don't, I, I would have to actually go back and listen to that because I've, I've pretty much eliminated Hamilton from my life so I have to go back and listen to it but like I don't know I remember them rhyming the same words over and over whatever well, yeah. You know, well, happens. I've I've never seen it, and that was absolutely by design because like the whole brouhaha about it started before I, it really got on my radar. So when I, I, I was aware of its existence, I'm like, nope, there's enough things that I can argue about in a well-actually way that I just don't need to touch this one. So that that's sort of where I went. But it, it is sort of like what Le Guin is talking about. I mean, Hamilton, the reason why it became such a success is because it tells a feel-good story. It's like when Le Guin mentions that the, the people of Omelas are like, you know, the kid, even if the kid left the room, it wouldn't even know what to do with it. 
like Hamilton was that. Hamilton was <laughs> the America telling itself a feel good story about how actually, you know, we were immigrants from the start and all that. And mm. basically lying <laughs> to itself so it, it could feel better. And I feel like- Well, I mean, it also erases the fact that Hamilton's, uh, like his first job was, uh, what was it? Uh, work in the books at his uncle's uh, and he had slaves, yeah. Basically uh, trading slaves, and you're like, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe not this immigrant. I don't know. <laughs> it's funny enough because uh, there's a guy who wrote a short play, basically criticizing Hamilton, and as a play, it's really bad and boring. But as a <laughs> as a criticism of Hamilton, it's great. Uh, I'm not going to say that because I feel bad criticizing him because the guy is like actually a really good writer. It's just that particular thing was not a good play. It was just a bunch of monologues. Anyway, it, so it happens for sure. <laughs> so the thing I think it's interesting is how a lot of people I looked up how people analyze this text because I was interested. And I found a lot of people mentioning how this is a, a story about the foibles of utopia, you know, about how utopia is something that is inherently enrichable. And we sort of breached this topic last episode on Down and Out in Magic Kingdom with this idea that, you know, we've been taught that everything has a catch. Every utopia has a catch. There is no such thing as a perfect utopia. So why even bother trying to get one? And I feel like this is a much better fictionalization of what it is to be rich than what it is to be in utopia. Because the description, it's, I find it very interesting that when Le Guin wants to go specific, she brings up things of wealth, you know? She brings up horses. She brings up, you know, if you can imagine, have train stations and all these things. She brings up topics of wealth. So that, in a way, this story kind of puts you in the mindset of a rich person. Because a rich person, at some point, has to deal with the fact of, like, how do we get so rich? And they have to actually think about it. And most people who do think about it then turn around and ignore it and stay around and say rich for the whole of life. But some people actually go and try to walk away from Momelas and all that. But yeah, I, I don't think this story is so much about utopia as it is about exploitation is what I'm trying to say. I think, I think you're onto something because uh, as, as I'm like scanning this and there's that line where it says um, she sort of goes into uh, what is it? For instance, how about technology? I think that there would, there would be no cars or helicopters in and above the streets. This follows from the fact that the people of Omalas are happy people. And this is it. Happiness is based on a just discrimination of what is necessary, what is neither necessary nor destructive, and what is destructive. In the middle category, however, that of the unnecessary but undestructive, that of comfort, luxury, exuberance, etc., they would they could perfectly well have central heating, subway trains, washing machines, and all kinds of marvelous devices not yet invented here, and so on. Yeah. And I, and I, you know what that reminded me of? Oh my God, I really hope this is not a reach. Has anyone here seen Little Shop of Horrors? I have. Yes. One of my favorite songs of all time is Somewhere That's Green, which is th this, in the moment, there's a moment in the musical where one of the characters who lives in like a poor part of town and who has a, a, a boyfriend who beats her up she has this moment where she's like i dream of one day going somewhere that's green and the entire song she's describing all the things that would be in that in that house uh she describes the the washing machine she describes the stove she describes the lawn she describes the fence she describes all the things that are going to be there and you it's supposed to be funny it's supposed to be like an uh -huh. it's all about things but also there's a deep sadness between it that it's like she, she can only see herself happy as owning things, as actually having material wealth. She has been ground down to such a point that that is the only way she can see herself ever being happy in her entire life. And so I thought about that because in Omelas, all the descriptions that Le Guin gives you are like ideas of things that for some reason we have at some point or another taught ourselves to believe that once we have these things, we will be happy. And that's kind of why she goes like, if you want to imagine this, fine. There's this moment where she goes, if you want to imagine an orgy, if an orgy would help, don't hesitate. You know, there's orgies because to some people, an orgy is an idea of like, oh my God, free sex without consequences. I would be happy if I had that as opposed to like being happy because you're happy with where you are in life, you know? 
it kind of reminded me of that. Right. I mean, I, f- I feel like there's these little asides, like what we're talking about, where she's willing, she has these little digressions where she's like, oh, you know, uh, I would say that there's no drugs, but, you know, that would be puritanical. Maybe they have uh, X drug and blah, blah, blah. And, 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 you know, sort of goes off on these little tangents and comes back. And then by the time she's sort of drawn out like these vague borders of, like figurative and perhaps literal borders of what Omelas is, that's where she springs, you know, do you believe it? Do you? If you don't, and again, this is the invitation. If you actually think, I mean, obviously, uh, part of the, the, the invitation at the beginning is to also set up that the, the people that live in Omelas are not evil because they're dumb. You know, that, that right. the, the recent thing where they're like, well, we're going to separate between college-educated voters and the people that, vo- that think of Q as real. And you're like, those actually have some overlap, you dumbasses. Not everyone that thinks certain things are dumb. And so she's, she's actually making an or, a, a moral argument that these people are just as, just as capable of distinguishing between good and evil, you know, bad and good, as we are, as you, the reader. And that's why she goes into these small digressions to sort of just sort of give you these little nuggets, some of them salacious, some of them not so much, but mainly it's just to delineate like these vague borders of where Omelas is technologically, you know, sort of as a fantastical concept. And it turns out that it's very similar to us, uh, except that, you know, obviously they don't uh, have helicopters or uh, things to exploit outward. In other words, they don't, they don't make war. Mm-hmm. That's not how they get their, their wealth and their ostentation. It's only the child. And that's the only, that's the linchpin of all of Omelas. And it's, it's sort of, that's why she does this. It's basically to, to close all those doors and lead you sort of logically to that one point. And it's that one door that leads to where the child is. And once she, once she closes all those doors, she opens that door and says, look, you don't have to open this door. You could, you know, basically she says, you could stop reading right now if you believe. But behind this door, let me tell you. Yeah. Whoa. Woo. Woo. Behind this door. Woo. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> It's a real bro moment behind this door. Bluebeard. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. There, I, I hadn't thought of it, but but yeah, that's abso- absolutely correct. What's Bluebeard? Oh, there's a there's an old uh, there's an old legend of this uh, this pirate that uh, marries this woman and she leads a wonderful life so long as she knows never to open a certain door. And eventually she does open it and figures out he's a murderer, I think, or a ghost, something like well, that. No, no. She opens a door and on, I believe if I'm remembering correctly on the walls are mounted all the other heads of his other wives who have also opened the door. Okay. Yeah, that's it. And obviously (laughs) ex machina. Oh, oh, that's wow. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, man. you know, they, they just couldn't secure the rights is what happened. And uh. <laughs> incredible. So um, I, I, as you know, this this story has a lot of personal significance for me. It's it's hard for me to get away from it. So like what? What do you guys do with it? Like, is it just something you read and you're like, okay, well, that she's right and you move on? Or is it built into your hierarchy? Or like, what, what do you do? Because I, I, I don't know what to do with it, I guess is what I'm saying. Feel bad about myself? I don't know. That, that's, that is actually a great question. Um, I do think that it is. Let, let, me, let me give you a little backstory. Uh, Pete, you may know this story. Uh, do you know the story about the Irish wolfhound? I do not. Uh, 
I forget. It's got a, a much more um, sort of, uh, what do you call it, formal name. But it's uh, a certain Lord's Irish Wolfhound. Uh, and he, you know, like, I remember reading this in some Childcraft Encyclopedia. I read it over and over again. Um, basically, the, the, the Lord of the, the, the house goes out hunting uh, and his, uh, I forget if his wife is uh, left behind with their newly born child and the Irish wolfhound. And when he gets back, he opens the door and the interior of the house is just covered in blood. And he sees his wife strewn over the, 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 the crib. And the only, the only creature that's still alive is the Irish wolfhound, his faithful hound just covered in blood. And he like takes it out and he, like runs it through or shoots it. And it's only after he shoots it that his wife comes to and says, no, you shouldn't have done that. And she reveals that behind the crib was the biggest wolf he'd ever seen. And that's a story that I read and wept (laughs) and read it over and over again. Um, I suppose this story is very similar to that in that sense. Uh, You know, it's just simply something that you pull out. I don't know what to do to change the world, man. I can't walk off the edge of the earth. That's the thing. I'm in it. Do you know about the the one, the the cat that fights the devil every night? (laughs) No. Oh, yeah. Actually, I think it, it may be a Neil Gaiman one, but I mean, the, the basic idea is that the, the, the devil, uh, you know, the devil comes to the, to the house every night to, to kill the family. And, uh, the, the, this, this, this alley cat that they've taken, it always demands to be let outside. And each time in the morning, they, they find him a little more damaged, you know, scarred up, missing a part of its tail. And, you know, the, 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 the narrator says, I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen when there's nothing left. Hmm. And I don't know if that relates, but it has the same sort of grim, like, fuck that this has. I mean, what about, what, what about Pandora? Pandora's box. Mm, The the idea that, well, it kind of has more to do with the blue beer thing of like, don't open this box. I got to open this box. Shit. (laughs) (laughs) but she closed it just in time to keep hope in there so there's no hope in the world wait is pandora's box hope punk no oh god (laughs) well i'll I'll, you know what i've been holding on to this michelle but now that you mentioned that please go ahead um there was a recent thread on twitter i don't want to call anyone out but there was a recent thread on twitter where someone was sort of sort of complaining that there isn't enough joyful stories in the world and that, uh, you know, that uh, awards need to be more concentrated on joyful stories and humor and blah, blah, blah. And they, they're not taken seriously. And I am going to read to you a someone that replied agreeing with this. I'm going to read a section Maybe, you, maybe you've heard it before, perhaps even in this same episode. Yet I repeat that these are not simple folk, <laughs> not dulcet shepherds, noble savages, blind utopians. <laughs> they were not less complex than us. The trouble is that we have a bad habit encouraged by pedants and sophistiates of considering happiness as something rather stupid. This was the defense, stripped of context of the story it's from. I don't know what to do with that, man. I really don't. <laughs> I think you must be the one who walks away from the Twitters. <laughs> I mean, I didn't bother to really respond to that because it's like, oh, this person's lost. <laughs> we were talking, you were talking about this before I came in or before we started recording about how people who want to say that fiction can change the world often want to feel bad, better about themselves. Uh, yes, yes. I think I honestly, I, I, I think I came to that realization, like I wrote this little story called, uh, writing for the end of the world, which is a funny story. It's very absurd and very grim. Um, 
and, and and also uses one of the best, one of my favorite jokes that has no cursing in it and no sexual content. Um, and so, uh, so it's honest, a knock knock joke. Uh, almost. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, have you you have you heard the one about the the guy that's on the bus and every stop, some guy that's sitting across from him reaches into like this briefcase and he throws papers out the window. Uh huh. So the bus stops and he does it again. And finally, like after, yeah, like at the third stop, he, he gets up and he says, sir, I have to ask you, why are you throwing papers out the window? He's like, it's to keep the elephants away. And the guy goes, well, but elephants, we, we don't have elephants for thousands of miles. And oh. the guy turns to him and says, see how good it's working. Okay. I, I've heard yeah. this one before. It's a good one. It's I, a, I love a bear it. repellent. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that, that is my, that was the story that I wrote and I realized that, and mainly it was to in, in sort of like ask a question as to, well, why do we think that writing post-apocalyptic stories are going to change anything? And honestly, that's when I realized uh, I, I can't do anything. I'm not in charge of the the nuclear football or, you know, the pandemic, <laughs> whatever's, it doesn't matter. And this was pre-pandemic. So I, I, I don't, I had no idea that was coming down the pipe either. So I, I, my story went out there and sort of was read by a couple people and they chuckled and that's, that's it. And I don't know that it changed anybody's mind about anything. It just is. It's what that old, that age old adage that I think I've heard from one of my old screenwriting teachers. If you want to send a message, put it through Western Union. <laughs> I might believe of this, my belief when it comes to messages in, in writing is if you start a story because you want to send a message and no one will read it because it will be very boring. But mm -hmm. if you write a story that has a message in it, I'm not guaranteeing you're going to change the world, but someone somewhere will read it and will think about your message and they might agree with it or they might ignore it, but that person's life, you will have affected it in a little, in a tiny way, which could have big yeah. repercussions or which it could not. And you know, that's, I mean, that's what I aim for. That just, and I'm not even yeah. saying like messages in the sense of like, uh, be gay, do crimes. It can be a message as simple <laughs> as like, you know, next time you see a homeless person, don't look away like they don't exist or something. It could be a message as simple as that, or consider where your your privileges come from. Those messages right. hidden in a good story can really affect somebody. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. Although sometimes, you know, like, uh, I mean, <laughs> people didn't seem to take away the, the correct message from watching Parasite. They're like, ooh, yeah, that was great. What did it mean? Uh... Yeah, those people shouldn't have tried to to screw over the rich people. You're like, oh. <laughs> well, honestly, I mean, hold on. Okay, I'm sorry. If you got that <laughs> message from Parasite, I think you're just a lost case. Well, I mean, <laughs> That's I, what I'm think, saying. I think at that point, your the comfort of your life depends on you not getting it. It's it's classic Omelas at that point. I mean, your yeah. defense mechanisms are kicking in. Yeah, yeah, I I, I know. I, I'm I'm mostly laughing at it because it's it's really. I mean, you can't make it clearer, but people will take away whatever they want from even your, you could have the evil clown, as in the Joker, say exactly why he killed people. And people will be like, see, incels. You're like, um, no. God, can, I cannot believe I bought into that. I actually, when I went to see Joker, I'm not joking about this, which is funny because it's about the Joker, but I'm not joking. I literally went to see it in an IMAX theater and I was so freaked out that somebody was going to come in shooting as if <laughs> anyone was going to do it at an 8 p.m. Saturday screening of the Joker at the Universal CityWalk AMC. Like, why the fuck would they shoot that place off? But I was really freaked out <laughs> for some reason. I mean because because people like people who had never seen it were uh, convinced that this was what the message was. Uh, the message is very simple, and even people that saw it came away with like different a different message than what <laughs> what is on the screen. And I'm not saying that uh, the director uh, is it Todd Phillips. Yes, he, you know the the director of three Hangover movies. We're not talking about like a a, 
a superlative, you know, a singular genius. We're just talking about a guy that made a bunch of movies that are based on, you know, people getting hung over. So it, he probably thought about the story more than you or I did. But at the same time, it's he's not trying to be subtle. No, no. It's, it's about the fact that we live in a society. There you go. And it all goes back to the point we made about Hamilton. You know, Mike Pence went to see Hamilton, but he didn't go to see Rent. Well, this makes know. sense to the five people who know what Rent is. <laughs> <laughs> if only we could get Lindsay Ellis uh, as one of the Patreons uh, subscribers. Rent is bad. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, also let's not forget that uh, we could always wait for the Snyder cut of Hamilton where, uh, you know, Alexander Hamilton dressed in Joker makeup will tell us that we also live in the society. Um, I'm so excited yeah, for the I, Snyder cut. And this is going to be from somebody who legitimately hated Batman versus Superman. I am oh so God. excited for it. I know. I, I don't mean hated because that implies I had enough of a, of a, of a reaction to it that I thought more about it, but like, I cannot wait to see the Snyder cut. I want a Snyder cut of Hamilton. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, man. Could you imagine <laughs> Hamilton out in the out of the battle, just slow mo sequences of him dodging bullets? Uh, uh, you know what? And then sped up, sped up as he bayonets the enemy. In this case, anyway. would David Diggs put out Twitter messages about how Limit while Miranda shouldn't be hired anymore? Oh shit! I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm just taking the metaphor to its logical conclusion. <laughs> it's true. Hypothetical. Hypothetical. Limit on Miranda. Don't fire In me. Minecraft. In Minecraft. In Minecraft. <laughs> Welcome uh, to all Melods. We are mining diamonds. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Cut that, please. <laughs> <laughs> the, the epic rap battles of who's behind the door. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Well, anyway, this is going off the rails. I think it's time to end it, right? That, yes. that was my suggestion. I, I, think, I think we're in a good place that is not going to improve with time. <laughs> yeah, we should walk away from the episode. <laughs> yes. I will. Can I conclude with something? Absolutely. Um, these past episodes that I've been on have formed my favorite kind of trilogy, the stealth trilogy, because we've been talking all about how people design and create perfect worlds and how those perfect worlds only highlight the problems of the societies they live on. And you can see that with the black president because it's racist. And you can see that with down and out in magic kingdom, because it's, a, it's the pro even in this perfect world, there's still the, ghosts of capitalism. And you can see that in Omelas, which is probably the most realistic of the three, weirdly enough. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, but yeah, you're right. And I think next time, I think I just want to put it like this. Next time you want to create a perfect world, maybe ask somebody else to look over your plans first. <laughs> <laughs> just putting that out there. <laughs> one, one of the don't, things... Don't, uh, one of the things don't my, send in your first draft. <laughs> yep. <laughs> One of the things my dad always used to say is that for every, for every 20 guys who want to build a utopia, there's one guy who can run a chicken coop. That's great. That's <laughs> I'm going to seal that. I'm I'm not even joking. Uh see you in 20 years when that shows up in the TV show I wrote. <laughs> all right, you got it, man. Make make sure he's not quoting somebody else, but it is all yours. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, uh, anything? Oh, uh, Michelle, I guess you you have a certain program, podcast, something. Yes. Yeah, so this is scheduled to come out in March, I believe. Right, March. Uh, let me see here. Um, <laughs> At this point, it could be next week, dude. I don't know. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> it's it's yeah, it's in March. I'll record. March. I'll record a generic one then. So basically, full metal on the. Full Metal Analyst still going on. It's a podcast about an anime, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. I try to make it as entertaining as fun to, to listen. And instead of just being another recap podcast, we try to really analyze the themes and the writing and the directing and everything to try and make it more of an engrossing, enriching experience than just a general recap. Because I think to just recap something, that's dumb. Let's not do that. Anyway, but also... Uh, depending on when this comes out, there's another podcast I made that's going to be launching. It's called Potter Who Cast. 
which is now that I'm saying it out loud, that's a really complicated name. Pot Potter Who Cast. So it's a podcast all about Doctor Who. Uh, I am a huge fan of Doctor Who, and a friend of mine, David, is launching his own podcast where he's going to go over the new series of Doctor Who episode by episode, and I'm going to be in a lot of those episodes. So if you've ever, ne if you've never seen Doctor Who and you want to watch it, or if you've seen Doctor Who and you want to hear two people talk about it and really get into detail on the show, a Potter Who cast is going to be coming out. Look for it wherever you get your podcasts. Excellent. Yeah. If you ever want all to right. talk about the old school doctor, let me know, man. I could talk about that all day. Dude, I've always wanted to sit down and watch. Do you know that there's uh, the, the greatest streaming service, Pluto TV, which is literally a bunch of TV channels playing stuff that they got the rights to? There's a channel that just plays Doctor Who, old Doctor Who, and I love it. I turn on my TV and it's like, what? The fifth doctor is battling robots in the hotel? Sign me up. <laughs> like, uh, I'm all for it. All right. All right, so let's, uh, I guess we'll leave it there, folks. Uh, thanks for listening uh, and hope to see you next time. There has been too much violence, too much pain. Not here, Nazi. But I am only Just walk away. Give you a pump, a boy, a gasoline. And the whole compound, and I spare you lives. Just walk away, or we'll give you safe passage in wasteland. Just walk away, and there will be an end to the horror. <laughs>